Hey guys, Matt here. Before we begin this episode of Tower Junkies, I just want to mention that we are currently running a contest where you can win a free Tower Junkies t-shirt. The contest runs from now until January 1st, 2018, and if you want to enter, all you have to do is leave a rating and a review of the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, take a screenshot of the review, and email it to matt at obsessiveviewer.com with the subject line Tower Junkies T-Shirt Contest. On January 1st, I'll randomly select a winner from the entries and we'll get a free T-Shirt mailed to them. We'll be accepting entries until December 31st at midnight, so make sure you get the email in before then. Thank you guys for listening and enjoy this week's episode of Tower Junkies. You're clean, aren't you? Except for your tower. You're a tower junkie, Roland. Hello and welcome to Tower Junkies, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. Tower Junkies is a podcast devoted to Stephen King and his magnum opus, The Dark Tower series. We discuss the themes, characters, and mythology of the series in Palaver episodes and review the books and comic series in Keth episodes. We also discuss King novels related to The Dark Tower, non-Tower King novels, TV and film adaptations of King's work, and the latest news about potential Dark Tower-related adaptations. You can find more of our work at TowerJunkiesPod.com and more of our podcasting at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. And you can also follow us on every level of social media at TowerJunkiesPod. I am your host, Matt Hurt, and with me today is Tiny. Hi, Hello. Tiny. Hi, Tiny. How's it going? It's going great. Long time no talk. Yeah, still a little sick. Yep. Uh huh. <laughs> it's uh yeah. That's a long. I mean, man, it's right? been a week. Yeah. Um, it hasn't been five minutes since we stopped recording the last episode. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, that's that was terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So thank you for bearing with me in recording these episodes. Sure. Um, so today on the podcast, we are going to be sharing our thoughts on Stephen King's novel, The Dead Zone. Um. And yeah, so that is what we are going to be doing today. Uh, Tiny, this novel in particular has, uh, I'm very excited to, to talk to you about it essentially. Cause, okay. um, for years you have mentioned that it used to be one of your favorites of mm-hmm. Stephen King's and I had never read it until I finished reading it a little while ago. So at this time, you and I have not shared our thoughts about the, um, about the novel. So I'm very excited to hear I'm very excited for this discussion. Totally. And, uh, yeah, it was my, it was one of the first like five Stephen King books I ever read. I don't remember where, like it wasn't the first, but it might've been like the second or third. I'm not really sure. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it held that title for a little while. My favorite Stephen King book. So nice. It's good. And that's awesome. So I'm very excited for this episode. And, uh, yeah, before we get into our review and everything, we like to check in with each other regarding Stephen King. So, anything new with you in the world of Stephen King? Yes, um, I also recently purchased Needful Things, which um, I think is one of the more central Castle Rock stories. Mm-hmm. It's the last Castle Rock story, <laughs> technically last, because okay. Gwendy's Button Box is the most recent one, but when Needful Things came out, it was billed as the last Castle Rock story. Okay, nice. So... Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah, that's and I'm uh, making my way, still making my way through uh, uh, Sleeping Beauties as well. So nice, yep. nice. Um, it's gonna be a total dick and be like, "Have you gotten any farther?" <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, nice. I am still working on um, uh, uh, Sleeping Beauties as well, and it's interesting because um, what is it? Uh, Needful things. It is kind of the it's it's the Stephen King novel. I'm one of the Stephen King novels that I haven't read yet that I'm actually really excited to read. Nice. Like it's it's one of my top like to read Stephen King novels, and the reason for that is that I just think the premise is awesome. Okay. Um, and I really um the kind of tragedy of my life <laughs> is that I want to read. Um, the Castle Rock stories in order. Um, so Needful Things is, you know, pretty far down that list. So I'm like, man, I gotta wait until then, but I'm, I'm very excited to read it. And, uh, they actually have a, 
paperback edition that on Amazon you can pre-order. It releases in March. I, th- I guess it's a new one like these like these new ones that have been coming out. Okay. Um, but it's odd because on Amazon it shows that it should have shipped in November. Um, but on Amazon it show- also shows that it's released in March. So I don't – I mean I guess in March I'm going to be receiving needful things. But, <laughs> okay. But yeah. Um, and then yeah. My, so my check-in is uh, – I had something, but I forgot. Oh, I will go ahead and just uh, say this. So um, we're recording this November 1st. Yesterday, Tiny, the Dark Tower movie came out on Blu-ray. It did. It did. So are you going to buy it? Man, I really don't know. I I feel like I need to. I feel like I need to buy it because it's it's the Dark Tower. And... Even though the movie sucked, I kind of want to see some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, um, even mm-hmm. some like interviews with the actors and the filmmakers and stuff. So I feel like I, I feel like I can't miss out on that stuff. So yeah, I'm, and I, I'm gonna have to buy it. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of in the same boat. The uh, the I mean, I just I I really didn't like the movie. I really did not like that movie. Terrible fucking movie. It's terrible. And uh, the kind of... The thing that kind of pisses me off about it even more now, or uh, continues to piss me off about it, is that Best Buy has Steelbook Blu-rays, like special covers and everything for Steelbooks. Um, And to be honest... The Dark Towers looks, the Dark Towers steelbook looks, looks kind of badass. Nice. And like here it is right here. Yeah, that does look cool. Yeah, and like I don't want to buy the damn movie, but it's also like, it, like you said, it's the Dark Tower. I'll probably buy it. And, uh, to the benefit of everyone listening, we will at some point record a commentary track for the movie. Yeah. Um, so that will be in the pipeline. That will be what we uh, buy the Dark Tower for. Yeah. So that we can provide you guys with uh, a commentary track for the movie. Totally. Totally. Yep. So that'll be in the pipeline at some point uh, whenever we get around to buying the Dark Tower. So that's my check-in for this episode, and uh, yeah, let's get into our review of The Dead Zone. Um, The Dead Zone, I should have pulled it up here. (laughs) Uh, The Dead Zone is a novel by Stephen King. Uh, It's not, well, it is, has some ties to Castle Rock. Um, Part of the story does take place in Castle Rock, and it does include a Castle Rock Strangler uh, subplot. And let's see. Okay, so this novel was published in 1979, and uh, it's his seventh novel, um, seventh published novel, I should say. And uh, let me go ahead and read the plot description, courtesy of the back of the paperback edition of the book. When Johnny Smith was six years old, head trauma caused by a bad ice skating accident left him with a nasty bruise on his forehead and, from time to time, those hunches. Infrequent but accurate snippets of things to come. But it isn't until Johnny's a grown man, now having survived a horrifying auto injury that plunged him into a coma lasting four and a half years, that his special abilities really push to the fore. Uh, Johnny Smith has come back from the void with an extraordinary gift that becomes his life's curse, presenting visions of what was, uh, of what was and what will be for the innocent and guilty alike. But when he encounters the, a ruthlessly ambitious and amoral man who promises a terrifying fate for all humanity, uh, Johnny must find a way to prevent a horror, uh, harrowing predestination from becoming reality. So, Tiny, this was one of your favorite novels. And, of course, this review is going to be a spoiler-free review, and then we will go into a spoiler review. Uh, we will prompt you guys for the spoiler review. So we are spoilers-free – or, no, wait, we're spoiler – non-spoiler right now. Yes. Uh, Tiny, uh, what made this one of your favorite Stephen King novels? Um, I, I, think, I think it's similar to uh – 1922, which we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. um, in the regard that it's, it has this supernatural element to it. And, and the, you know, in the fact that he's a clairvoyant person, 
Um, but again, that's not really the focus of the story. I feel like, I feel like it's so much about the inner turmoil of the character of Johnny Smith deciding how, what lengths he should go to with this gift or curse, whatever you want to call it, you know, how, Mm -hmm. how far should he take the knowledge that he finds and should he try to use his ability to actually do good? Should he basically like superhero it or -hmm. should he just take things as they come? You know, don't, don't, uh, don't try to influence things or, or whatever. Just, just, you know, if a piece of information comes his way, do something with it. Or if it doesn't, then, it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. So he, he struggles with that. And I think that's the, that's the meat of the story is building that character and letting, letting the events of his life decide how he wants to use his ability. And I think that's what makes it, that's the meat of the story. That's what makes it interesting. It's not the fact that he has the clairvoyance. It's what he does with it. And I think that's, that's the coolest part of the, of the story and it makes you think about yourself, you know, like what would you do? How far would you take it? Or, mm-hmm. you know, what, what, what are the lengths you'd be willing to go to, uh, to use the information that you have from such an incredible power. And I think that it made me, you know, I, when I read this, I was like 13 and it made me mm-hmm. like, I had never thought about that before. And, you know, it made me like learn something about myself. And so I think that's why I, why I enjoyed it so much. And to this day still enjoy it so much. Nice. Um, You know, what's interesting to me is that I went into this novel expecting it to be just kind of straightforward, which is always kind of a (laughs) bad idea when when going into a Stephen King novel. But I was kind of expecting it to be like the story of a guy who can see when people die or see horrific events in the future. Um, And I thought it was going to be kind of a clear cut thing there. what surprised me is that it's not quite that. It's this, like you said, it's a, it's a, it's an intense emotional story uh, about a man who is dealing with the personal ramifications and the um, personal um, conflicts that arise with his power. Um, it's kind of hackneyed to say this, to say this, but it's great power, great responsibility. Right. Um, he is grappling with with what he should do with this power, and. That's one of the most engaging parts of the of the novel for me. And he what is so endearing to me about it is that the character of Johnny Smith from the outset is he is kind of the prototypical um everyman character, kind of normal guy character that that Stephen King loves writing about or writing into the into his stories. But what kind of separates him from from the others that I've read is that he is I mean he is just a very good person. Yeah. Like his interactions with um with Sarah um Sarah throughout the early parts of the novel like you just like he just seems like just such a good dude and he just like he has this energy to him that is so wholesome and heartfelt and he is a very caring person and you get an extension of that with the scenes when he's while he's in a coma you get scenes between uh sarah and um and his father um herb yeah herb. uh yeah so with the scenes with herb and sarah like one of the things i loved about it is that when johnny goes into a coma he um he basically the book shifts to being about the supporting characters in his life dealing with him being in a coma. Right. And that's what I love. Cause it could have just been an easy like time jump to four and a half years later, he's waking up and Oh, all this stuff has happened. Right. Um, but it's not, um, it's just, it's great. Um, yeah. Oh, God. And, uh, kind of going back to kind of overall thoughts on it. Um, my overall thoughts on the book is that I, I was really into it in the first, the first half, first, first third. Uh, the book is kind of separated into three kind of distinct sections. I was, well, three to four. Um, and it's an interesting way to, to tell the story. Um, I don't know throughout it if I was really on board with, with the narrative, uh, structure of it um we get the first part um then 
the kind of middle section of the book without going into spoilers is kind of a, um, it's kind of an interlude, um, between, between the beginning and the end, uh, the end game of the, of the book. And it's kind of unconnected and it's kind of more of a proof of his powers, I guess, or proof of, of his, the proof of his consciousness and stuff like that. So it's, and that is something that like, it's, uh, it's a subplot that I kind of wish was the entire novel. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting enough subplot, but, uh, but then by the time we got to the last part, I was like, I was kind of all for it. Um, but I just felt like it was a little clunky the way that it was, it was, um, presented and I'll go into more detail and spoilers, but I just had some small issues with the way that the book was, uh, the narrative was, was, uh, organized essentially. Did you catch any of that or did you, do you, are you picking up what I'm putting down? I am. Yes. Yeah. yeah I agree. I think a, a whole, a whole novel could be dedicated to just that, the whole man in a coma thing and how his family deals with it. Um, there's actually a really cool movie called, uh, the diving bell and the butterfly. Mm-hmm. Where uh, it's a true story about the editor of Vogue, like gets in a bad car accident and he's like, he loses his ability to to communicate. He can't talk or anything, but he ends up writing a, a whole biography. He like mm-hmm. learns how to communicate with people. Right, it's a really good movie. And so like it's that that the perspective of that movie is so cool, and I feel like that that movie kind of proves to me or kind of uh, confirms the premise that you can have. A whole story uh, evolved around someone who can't communicate in traditional ways, or who has different p- skills of perception, um, like someone in a coma might have. Or you know, there's some some uh, cases and some science to back up that people in comas can have some some perception and they can understand, hear things, and know stories that happened while they were in their coma that you know, they shouldn't know and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. that, yeah, you're right. That could be a whole coma or that could be a whole story yeah. <laughs> about being in a coma. That would be such a cool perspective and mm-hmm. it would take a really skilled writer to pull it off. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the, I would totally read the crap out of that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, uh, Greg Stilson is an interesting character in his own right. And we will talk more about this in spoilers and mm-hmm. we won't, I will we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I had some very um very vivid thoughts when reading the Greg Stilson parts of this of this book. Right. Um and I think the Greg Stilson subplot without going into too heavy of spoilers makes in a very tragic sense makes the dead zone both as of now in 2017 kind of timeless. Yeah. And also very prescient. Um, yeah. and it's, we'll talk more about that in spoilers, but it is, it's a very interesting subplot. Totally. Um, and it's, it's something that even though I kind of felt a discrepancy between, or not discrepancy, but a disconnect between the different, uh, acts of the story, if you will, I felt like it was, um, uh, played out really well. Agreed. Yep. Yeah, it would be fascinating um, for Johnny Smith to shake Donald Trump's hand. Yeah, yeah. That, I would. That would be. Oof. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, um, is there anything else we should say? Non spoilers. It's kind of brief. It is kind of brief. Yeah. yeah. What did you feel about the the different relationships Johnny Smith had with characters throughout the book? There's uh, the whole plot with him and Sarah, him and his father, him and his mother, and then also. Um, uh, Chuck, the kid that he tutored in the third act. Right. I think, I think it's, uh, it, it serves your point that he's just a really good person because he, throughout the movie, he has these relationships with people and everyone ends up really liking him. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the kid that he tutors, like considers him a really close friend. And, um, Sarah, his love interest never really falls out of love with him. I don't think despite mm-hmm. the fact that she's married and has kids and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and his dad, you know, never gives up, he kind of gives up hope on him, um, while he's in his coma, but you know, he, I think he really redeems that by how close he is with his son after he gets out of the coma. Yeah. Um, the relationship between his father and him is so, so heartwarming. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. Right. And then the, uh, the doctor that he, 
um, becomes friends with mm-hmm. and the doctor who, you know, he's a, a man of science, but he, he has to acknowledge that there's something beyond what science can explain going on with this person. And he's, he, he still, it's just interesting how he tries to balance his professional ideas with the evidence that's presented to him. And I, I just kind of appreciate the, and I don't know if I want to use the phrase mental gymna- gymnastics he has to go through, mm-hmm. um, but maybe like logical gymnastics he has to go through in order to, you know, understand what this man is capable of. Um, but I think it's it was just a really interesting perspective to have uh, a, a medical scientist mm-hmm. uh, so closely attached to his character. That was one of my favorite relationships of the book. Mine too. Mine too. And uh, Wyzak is the is the doctor's name. Yeah, there you go. And uh, something we didn't touch on before is that I listened to the audiobook and you listened or you read the paperback. Yes. And uh, the audiobook on Audible currently is uh, read by James Franco. Okay. Who, of course, played Jake Epping in uh, the eleven twenty two sixty three miniseries. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to kind of go on a brief tangent. James Franco does an incredible job nice. narrating this book. And when he does Wyzak's voice, he does the he does an accent that's just it's it's perfect. Like I wanted nice. to hear him speak as as Wyzak throughout more of the book. <laughs> um but it was really good. And I love that relationship too because uh, for everything you said and just he uh, I I don't I don't want to say it's a fault of the book or it's it's any ding on the book, but like the fact that Johnny Smith has this support system and these people in these people in his life that are as caring and and genuine toward him as he is to others is mm-hmm. just so refreshing, and that makes the that makes the events of the book even more um, heartfelt and and makes it even more um, engaging when when things go wrong. Totally. Agreed. Um, yeah, so let's go more into spoilers. Totally. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we will go into spoilers. Um, we'll play some brief interlude music, um, and then we'll go right into spoilers for The Dead Zone. And we are spoilers on for The Dead Zone by Stephen King. So, Tiny, I want to kind of talk more in depth about the structure of this book, um, particularly the the way that it's it starts out with establishing Johnny's relationship with Sarah, and then the coma, and then he uh, then he goes to Castle Rock to to take down the Strangler, and then there's this whole thing with Greg Stilson and the assassination. Um, one of the things that I felt so disconnected with on this and so that one of the things that kind of made me kind of, uh, kind of not, it kind of struggled. I kind of struggled with it throughout the book is that not so much that it jumps from, okay, strangler to politician, uh, to assassination thing. Um, and it felt very kind of loose and very, uh, it didn't feel like, it didn't feel like the narrative was, it felt, it felt more like a just general flow and it didn't seem connected to the rest of the book, each specific part. So other than that, like the thing that made me feel kind of disconnected to it is that that first part, his Johnny Smith's whole support system and everything is his father and Sarah and Wyzak. And then in the latter part of the book, suddenly over halfway through the book, we're introduced to this kid who has a learning disability or can't or dyslexia and can't read. And we have his father. We have a whole new set of supporting characters and a whole new job for Johnny. It feels like it feels like a different book. And that took me out of it a little bit because I really wanted to connect more with the characters that had been established. And even though they were still kind of there, it just felt like man, we're being introduced to a whole bunch of new stuff. Um, and it paid off well because toward the end when, when he's going toward the assassination attempt, you get this wonderful kind of thought of like, there are so many people that care about him that, you know, 
are going to be affected by this. Mm-hmm. But it just felt like it was just kind of clunky. And I have I have more to say on that. But did you feel that at all? Or um, I don't know. That, I don't know that I felt that way specifically, but I can understand how you got there. Mm-hmm. Um, because I feel like. Johnny moving to it's New Hampshire, correct? That he moves to. I believe so. Yeah, he moves to New Hampshire, gets this tutor job with Chuck, the young kid. Mm-hmm. I think that was his attempt at like a fresh start. So sure. it's yeah. it kind of it kind of is a new story. It's it kind of is a new story in a way. Um, but you know, of course, as he finds out, his demons follow him there, if you will, or mm-hmm. if you want to call them his demons, um, they follow him there, and I think he kind of comes that that part of the story was integral to his development because it kind of, he figures out that he can't run from this or he can't just push down his abilities or, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, get away from them. Really. He has to, he has to do something with them. And I think that story or that part of the story, that experience he had in New Hampshire drove that home for him and made that, made that a reality that, he can't just sit idly by with his power, with his abilities anymore. He has to do something with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think I, I agree that it, it was a bit of a jump mm-hmm. and, and could be jarring, but, uh, but I, I think it was, uh, it was so informative to his character and so developmental in his, his evolution as a character that, uh, that it was, an, I think it was a, a good choice, like a, a necessary jump to take. Okay. And that's fair. And I think that if I, whenever I get around to rereading it or what have you, it will maybe be less of a, less jarring to me. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I mean, I, I did like Chuck and I liked Chuck's father and, and the, uh, um, I think it was the, the, the foreign character Go, I think. Yeah. Um, I liked those characters. It just seemed, a little bit uh, discombobulated for me. Okay. And also kind of in that same vein, uh, early in the book, we get a scene where um, it's kind of a just completely standalone scene where a guy goes into a bar and uh, tries to sell the guy lightning rods. Mm -hmm. And then this is in the first third of the book. It's kind of completely by itself. And then the payoff of that, if I remember correctly, is that it was the place where Chuck and his his classmates were having their big party that caught fire and killed a bunch of kids. Um, so my kind of gripe with that, and the, it kind of uh, escalated the feeling of of dis uh, uh, dis uh, disjointedness in, in the narrative because we had this solo scene to set up this big event late in the book. And it just made me think like, well, when we had that scene, like none of the characters that are at, that are at risk or anything were even, were even introduced yet. Yeah. And it just seemed like it wasn't so much like I didn't need to know that Chuck was a person when, uh, when the guy goes into the bar to sell lightning rods, but it's just like, it made me think like, man, we've come a long way and this, the placement of this lightning rod scene is just like, did we even need that? <laughs> yeah. It just seemed like it could have just been completely cut out, but yeah, I'll, I'll agree that that, that scene, if you will, was not needed at all. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, and to kind of backtrack a little bit to talk more about the relationships that Johnny has, um, man, him and Sarah, that was so heartbreaking. It really is. Um, on a multitude of levels. Um, because he is this charismatic, genuine, friendly guy. And like, you feel that they legitimately are in love with each other. And then to see her move on and, and it's not like, uh, it's not anything that you can hate her for or anything. Yeah. Um, because it's just a natural thing. Like they missed their chance. And as the book progresses, the relationship between Herb and Sarah is very touching. And, uh, and then the fact that there, there's one passage in the book where uh, Herb, it's after it's after Sarah and Johnny finally sleep together, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was such a. <laughs> I would never say this about a scene involving infidelity, but man, that was beautiful. It was. Um, it was just so like they didn't. It wasn't uh, melodramatic. It didn't. Mm. They didn't have this big stretch of pages that were definitely um, that was that was kind of wrestling with the moral uh, implications of it and everything. It was just this very this very satisfying kind of 
release of the tension and, and the feelings that they have for each other. And it didn't feel wrong or anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, say that to Sarah's husband, but um, <laughs> but no, I I know what you mean. But um, but what was really uh, kind of heartbreaking after that, and to to put into context for this, I was listening to the audiobook and I was in the store during this scene. I was in the grocery store getting my getting my fixins for dinner and stuff. And the scene after they sleep together, when they have dinner with Herb, and uh, Johnny describes how Herb is is playing with Sarah's son and how he doesn't know if he if his father realizes that that he and Sarah have have slept together and then there's a very short passage where it says something to the effect of um uh Herb doesn't know it but in another universe he's playing with his grandchild this yeah. is his grandchild and it was so rough it was so rough because that relationship is so beautiful um, Sarah and Johnny, they, they are such a beautiful, uh, pairing in the story. And the tragedy of it is that fate stepped in and, and prevented them from, uh, being what they could have been. And I mean, that's just, that's just heartbreaking. It really is. Um, yeah. And that was, that was just such a great, uh, a great part of the book for me yeah um made grocery shopping very awkward i bet um yes but yeah i think it's um you mentioned the concept or the the force of fate Mm -hmm. um i think that plays an interesting role in this book because um clearly the auto accident is that puts johnny in the coma is a result of fate or the universe or mm. whatever kind of force that runs the world. Ka, if you will. Ka, yeah, there you go. Um, course correcting or mm. um, I don't want to use the word punishing, but just kind of, just kind of uh, making its presence known. You know, he was, Johnny uses his ability for personal gain and for mm-hmm. kind of an ignoble reason. And I think Ka reprimands him for it with the auto accident. Um, and that's just like, <clears throat> it's a really harsh punishment, I guess, yeah. for winning a couple hundred dollars or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel, I'm curious if you think, I'm not sure what I think about it, but do you feel like the tumor was also the result of the universe or Ka course correcting or that's a really interesting point because I honestly, I don't remember if there was, uh, if there, how much, how much, if any of, of the book was saying that, that the universe, like positing that the universe caused the car accident as right. punishment for that. I don't know if that was just your read on it or if it was explicitly stated that it was a possibility. I don't know. I feel like, I guess I don't know that it was explicitly mm. explicitly stated, but sure, it's got to be because it's just I mean, it happened, yeah, it happened that night. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just it, that that's what it felt like to me. The universe is just a huge <clears throat> cock blocking machine. No kidding. Um, but no, the uh, yeah, and that's a very interesting point because I I didn't pick up on that. Okay. Um, and the tumor being kind of a. Uh, you know, that is an interesting concept, like the tumor, or I think it's technically a blood clot, um, but the, the medical condition that ends his life down the yeah. road, um, that's, that's a really interesting idea to, to posit that like Ka or the universe has, has given that to him. And that makes me wonder um, what the implication is. Like you, from your perspective, you're saying that it's punishing him for interfering with the, with the future and everything. Um, but it kind of seems like to me w- reflecting on that, it makes me think that the, it, it was the universe or Ka putting a time limit on him mm. and, uh, and forcing him into taking action against Stilson, okay. um, and kind of giving him that push, um, two completely different reads from different ends of the spectrum. But I think that you could make an argument for both. Yeah. Um, and it'd still be compelling either way. Right. And I, w- I, w- I would also make that argument because every time his clairvoyance kicks in, he gets the headaches. Oh, yeah. And then also at the at the end, when he's literally trying to assassinate Greg Stilson, mm-hmm. 
his tumor kind of prevents him from doing it. Like it's gotten right. so bad that his vision is so blurred and his senses are so dulled yeah. because of the tumor that he literally can't assassinate him. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you can, again, you can kind of make an argument, like you said, make an argument on both sides of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, I don't know. That's, that's an interpretation I kind of came away with uh, reading it the second time. But, that's really interesting. Yeah. I'll have to, next time I read it, I'll, I'll keep that in, uh, in, in my mind about it. Right. Um, but yeah, we'll go back to the assassination attempt in a bit, but I want to also kind of circle back and talk about his relationship with his mother. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that I thought was really interesting. Like, and it's kind of a trope of Stephen King that he has a religious fanatic mm-hmm. in a story. Um, and since this is so early in his career, it's kind of funny to see that coming back so frequently that early in his career because he had Carrie and uh, um, uh, uh, the the stand. Oh, I think was this before the stand or after? Mm. I think this was right after the stand. Yeah, after it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, so he has this religious figure that that becomes a zealot and is uh, and is basically that's her coping mechanism for the for the accident and and Johnny's coma, which I thought was a very interesting uh, thing to do to the character, and it also made the bond between him and his father so much stronger because. Uh, and also the bond between her, between uh, Herb and Sarah, even stronger because one of the things that I thought was extraordinarily touching was while uh, while Johnny was in the coma, and Sarah is having this uh, this friendship is blooming between her and Herb. Um, it's amazing because they're both mourning Johnny, and Herb is in a position where he can't rely on his wife to comfort him in this because she has gone off the deep end. And it's just this tragic, uh, coming together of two characters as, as, and becoming friends through tragedy and through coping and mourning of this person that both of them love. It's just, it's just a beautiful way to, to tell the story in, in that section of the book. I, I loved it. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, yeah, it's, it, it's so hard. I feel, I feel like, you know, we talked about how, how wholesome and and good of a character Johnny is, mm-hmm. um, and he just gets shit on at every turn. You know, he his, does. Mom, his mom dies, and his dad is depressed, and he's mm-hmm. in a coma. He loses his girl. Mm-hmm. He has this medical condition. He has horrible, uh, horribly painful physical therapy he has to go through. It's just like it's it's kind of a it's his his mother and her condition is kind of a, a another another check on the list of shit that Johnny has to go through and mm-hmm. it's another thing that influences his decisions throughout the book. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, it, it comes up even after she passes away. He, he has flashes of his mother telling him that he needs to use his ability. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah. I think that's really integral because I mean, you're supposed to do what your mom tells you, you know, what, right. what son doesn't want, you know, what son wants to go against his mother's wishes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I agree. That was that was really special, and 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 to your point, the way that it brought Sarah and Herb together was pretty pretty incredible too. Because yeah, they were supposed to be father in law and daughter in law, right? You know, in another universe they were, like, mm-hmm. like you said. And it's it was good that we got to see a snippet of it. I think mm-hmm. it gave a, gave the reader a little bit of hope. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and then, uh, kind of moving, shifting focus once again, uh, cause I know, <laughs> cause I know you are getting really worn yeah, out. Yeah, my voice is going here. Yeah. Uh, the Castle Rock Strangler. Yes. Um, <clears throat> one thing, I have a gripe about that. Okay. Um, just because me, I'm, uh, well, not a gripe, I misspoke, but I got frustrated because when we were introduced to it, um, I immediately knew that Frank Dodd was the was the killer. Really? Um, yes, because I read Cujo a couple years ago, uh. and they referenced that in the beginning parts of Cujo. And I had a funny moment because I was sitting there like, "Fuck, I know that it's Frank Dodd." Like that just got, like I I spoiled that for myself because uh. I remember specifically them naming Frank Dodd as the killer, and then another. 10, 20 pages or 15 minutes in the recording or in the audio book, it's revealed. So I'm like, oh, it's not a whodunit throughout the rest of the book. It's it's just there. 
Right. Um, so I was very relieved at that. Um, the way that that whole storyline played out, I thought was, it was a cool little vignette, um, to kind of bridge the gap between the first part and the third part of the book. Um, still kind of was a little iffy on the actual, um, uh, the way that the, the, that it was structured and everything. But, uh, if anything, the payoff of Frank Dodd's suicide, um, the, just the description of it was just horrific and really stuck with me. Totally. Um, yeah. How'd you feel about the Castle Rock Strangler? Um, I, I, I didn't know, I did not know it was Frank Dodd, even though I have read Cujo, mm-hmm. but again, I was 13. Right. It was a long time ago, but, um, I, I had completely forgotten about that from the first time I read it. And I don't know why, cause I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought it was really, it's amazing how, how much texture there is to that story, given that it's only like a hundred pages out of the book. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not, like you said, it's not a, a whodunit that you try to figure out through, through the, throughout the whole book. It's just a, a section of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really, I feel like it should have been more influential in the evolution of Johnny as a clairvoyant, you know, I feel like, cause I feel like he's kind of the cat. It should have been more of a catalyst for him using his clairvoyance more mm-hmm. because that's what his experience with the, with tutoring Chuck where the restaurant catches on fire. Mm-hmm. That's the, I think mean, I feel like that's the ultimate catalyst for him needing to kind of get away from his relationships and coming to the conclusion that he needs to use his powers for something, mm-hmm. use his abilities for something. And I feel like the castle rock strangler should have been that catalyst. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's almost like, why does he need two two events that powerful to influence him to do what he does? Um, but it was still really awesome. I mean, yeah, I just, the whole, the, I love the the setting of it, you know, when the the sheriff picks him up and it's snowing really hard and they yeah. they walk out to the park and he sits on the bench, right? And the bench doesn't do anything, but then he picks up a cigarette. Is that what it is? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, or it's a pack of cigarettes they find, something like mm, that. I think it's just a butt, yeah. Yeah, a cigarette butt. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was a really entertaining progression. Yeah, and the kind of way that it, it just shifts into a detective story right, is just exactly. it's really cool. Exactly. Um. And again, just the description of the suicide of Frank Dodd is I, I'm actually going to just read the passage here. Um, it's from page 367 from the paperback edition uh, and quote, Johnny could see over his shoulder, could see too much. Frank Dodd was propped on the lowered seat of the toilet. He was naked except for the shiny black raincoat, which he had looped over his shoulders. The raincoat's black hood, executioner's hood, Johnny thought dimly, dangled down on the top of the toilet tank like some grotesque deflated black pod. He had somehow managed to cut his own throat. Johnny would not have thought that possible. There was a package of Wilkinson's sword blades on the edge of the wash basin. A single blade lay on the floor, glittering wickedly, uh, glittering wickedly. Drops of blood had beaded on its edge. The blood from his severed jugular vein and carotid artery had splashed everywhere. There were pools of it caught in in the folds of the raincoat, which dragged on the floor. It was on the shower curtain, which had a pattern of paddling ducks with umbrellas held over their heads. It was on the ceiling. Uh, around Frank Dodd's neck on a string was a sign, uh, was a sign crayoned in lipstick. It read, I confess. And just that imagery is just so interesting and so vivid and, and cool. Horrific. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in that, that whole storyline was, was pretty, pretty well done. Um, and also that's another companion that he has here is he meets Bannerman, mm-hmm. the sheriff. Um, also I do want to mention that, uh, it's interesting that I did not pick up on this Easter egg, obviously, when I watched 112263, the miniseries, um, because I had never read the dead zone, but, uh, in the miniseries, uh, spoilers for the miniseries, I guess, uh, Sadie's ex-husband, uh, they use the, uh, and it's just such a disturbing thought and imagery. But like uh, Frank Dodd, part of his backstory is that his mother, uh, I think the description is that she clothes pinned his penis. Right. 
uh, and yeah, that as as punishment, and that's referenced in eleven twenty two sixty three with yeah. another character, and uh, yeah, I thought that was an interesting uh, an interesting Easter egg. Right, there. I forgot about that. Yeah, um, and so yeah, so yeah, and then uh, yeah, it's about a m- much about the Cast Rock Stranglers we can probably go into. Yeah. So Greg Stilson and mm. the assassination attempt and everything and the <clears throat> the fire and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the tutoring aspect because again, now it it seems slightly redundant that it's like, oh yeah, you know, uh, Johnny's this great guy and he's he's helping people and he's just a great person. It kind of seemed a little redundant, but I did like the interactions because I was so such a fan of the character and mm-hmm. and the interactions and the good that he was doing. Um, but then Greg Stilson comes into play, and we'll talk about the Trumpisms later, but mm-hmm. uh, separately. But I loved the idea that this, or the fact that this story turned into, it turned into eleven twenty two sixty three. Yeah, it turned into a character trying to uh, prevent horrific, fu- uh, uh, a terrible future. It it basically took the idea of if you could kill, if you could kill Lee Harvey Oswald would you do it? And it just did that in a very unique way. Um, and it just, and, ah, uh, it was, it was really enthralling because as the story gets to the point where it's turning into an assassination plot from the perspective of the assassin who you have spent hundreds of pages falling in love with really, and getting in being behind the entire way. It's just a really unique narrative choice to, kind of chronicle his not descent into madness, but his you're behind him in his goal to take out Stilson. And I thought that was a really unique, uh, place to take the, to take the reader. Totally. I agree. Yeah. Um, and then the part where he comes to the decision that he is going to do it. And then we get this kind of, uh, lead up to it where, it's an account, and I, I loved this. I thought this felt like such a – this kind of was very unnerving and chilling that uh, there's a section where he's going to the place where he's going to try to kill Stilson. And he is – his actions of that day are told via the um, eyewitness accounts of people that he interacts with. Right. And it is so chilling because it's like it's like reading accounts of people seeing ghosts and things mm-hmm. uh, because you know something is about to happen and it's going to be world changing. Um, and then how did how did you feel about the actual payoff of it, the the assassination attempt and the revelation of the blue filter being a child and then and then Greg Stilson uh, using the child as a shield <laughs> and thereby you know, ruining his political career without having Johnny kill him. I think it was a great direction to take the story in because I feel like the, the wholesomeness and delightfulness of the character of Johnny would have been cheapened in a certain way by the fact that he would have killed someone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, from a moral perspective, you could still defend it and say that, well, you know, he was actually doing the right thing by killing this person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, again, he's just like, he's supposed to be like the untouchable hero, you know, and to, to have him actually kill someone would have been, I think it just would have cheapened the character a little bit. Yeah. So I think it was a great and sort of unexpected direction for that event to go that, mm-hmm. you know, this, this kid just happens to be there with his camera and take this perfectly timed photo yeah. of, of Stilson holding up the child and it that ends up being as equally ruinous as an assassination would have been. Mm-hmm. He assassinated his political career yeah, as opposed to killing the man. Mm-hmm. Um, and cause you know, killing him could have had the opposite effect, right? He could know? have been a martyr, right? He could have been a martyr, right? Mm-hmm. And his fans would have rallied around a similar character who would have, could have done a similar thing. Mm-hmm. And so it's, again, it's, it's almost like fate, took it into its own hands to to make it to where this is the events this is how the events played out as opposed to just a death or an assassination it's 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 a very unique progression of of events and mm-hmm. it's 
I think it was the right direction to take it. And I think it makes a lot of sense in the long run. You know, it would have been the simple solution to just make it so Johnny, Johnny is <clears throat> just to make it so that Johnny assassinated the guy as opposed to this really cool turn of events that has, has mm-hmm. a cool effect. Yeah, because there was so much buildup toward the assassination attempt that, right. like I, like I was pre- um, preparing myself to be disappointed in it because it seemed like I was kind of in in two camps. One is like, okay, well, we've spent so much time building up toward this that if he just assassinates him, it's gonna be unsatisfying and, right. and even maybe even anticlimactic. Um, but the way that the story went where, you know, he assassinated his political career and everything. Um, that was just, that was just brilliant. That was a nice curveball. Um, having said that, I think that had, had the ending of the book been that he did kill Stilson, um, and that the that the blue filter didn't exist or anything, and that there was that it was just a straightforward he killed Stilson. I think it would have been a cool way to end the book if they had ended or if King had ended the book that way, and then had the last like like an epilogue that just had um, all of the supporting characters giving statements about Johnny and how great of a person he is. Mm-hmm. So it'd just be kind of like a play on the whole, like, Oh, he's such a nice person. I didn't know he had it in him to do this. And like the whole, like, you know, quiet neighbor who goes on a rampage kind of thing. Right. I think that would have been an interesting kind of spin on it. But, um, obviously the, the kids, the, the kid thing and, and the way that it all played out was, uh, was, perfect for the story absolutely and considering that king is someone who famously just writes writes free free association writing i guess or or kind of just writes uh as it comes in and does an outline um it's just amazing how how much it fits uh that this would be the end of it right even though the book is kind of disjointed for me narratively but Mm -hmm. kind of that that leading to that ending is really satisfying yeah um, and then, yeah, so kind of the elephant in the room, um, the depiction of Stilson, this book was published in 1979 and it is so relevant today Yeah, because Stilson is depicted as someone who is, um, a circus act. He is a, he's a loud mouth, um, very uh energetic and um he's an out- an outsider yeah he's an outsider to the pol- political arena he has demons um mm-hmm. quite a bit and he is someone who uh reaches his height of power by speaking so uh loudly um and making so many just huge promises and 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 just being as crazy as they come. <laughs> and that is so interesting in this day and age because we are living in Donald Trump's America where he rose to the presidency by doing things very similar to what Greg Stilson does in The Dead Zone. Um, the parallels between the two of them are pretty disturbing. It's It's incredibly disturbing and really fascinating and yeah. sad. Um, yeah. It's really sad. Like one of my notes was, uh, uh, this feels so much like Trump. Um, hang on. Okay. Yeah. The, the note was, uh, so much Trump in this sad. <laughs> um, and, and it is, it's just, man, it's just, if you, if you want to read, uh, it's just amazing to me that this this book is so feels so prescient about about Trump. It's it's just remarkable, right? Um, I agree. Yeah, yeah, I the first time I read it, there was no crazy politicians in office that I could equate the character mm-hmm. with. But yeah, reading through it this time, I was like borderline disturbed. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, I don't want anybody to assassinate Donald Trump. But right. I'm just saying, you know. What I found disturbing is that this rational person, you know, foresaw all the character flaws of this person and and thought they were so bad, so bad that the person needed to die. Mm-hmm. That I see those same things and some of those same things in Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. 
I don't want the man to die, but I'm just right. saying, you know, it's it's disturbing that he came to that conclusion, I guess. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to see to to read a piece of fiction from the late seventies um that by design, like the design of Greg Stilson is he is he is an over the top character yeah. who is so depicted <clears throat> as so crazy and like it's it's so um it's so um deliberately crazy um throughout the book and to have that craziness like to have Stephen King write that um and then have us live that type right. of thing so close to it um is just kind of astonishing and it's it's a very uh <sighs> very relevant book um to read and obviously yes we're not saying anyone should assassinate donald trump yeah if you were to leave office i mean that would be cool right 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 but yeah it's it's just man it's just it blew my mind so many so many parts of this book talking about stilson just made me just kind of have to pause and be like man stephen king was just hit it right on the head absolutely decades before it happened yeah in a book about someone who sees the future, <laughs> which was pretty uh, pretty astounding. So, yep. um, yeah, if you whatever end of the political spectrum you fall on, uh, check out Dead Zone because it's it's amazing. Absolutely, uh, the parallels. Um, yeah, and let's see, is there anything else we should cover? Um, if there is, I'm not sure I can get it out. Right. Yeah. My voice is done. Right. So we will be reviewing the movie. Uh, it's, is it a David Cronenberg movie? I don't recall. I, I don't, I want to say it's David Cronenberg. It might be. Um, with, uh, Christopher Walken. It's not good. And Martin Sheen. Yeah. I'm kind of, yeah, well, well, it's our job. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. we will not be reviewing the TV show cause that's just too much work. Yeah, no way. Um, although man, it would be interesting to see a TV show. I like, I have no idea how, uh, the TV show, uh, arc was, was played out, but I don't know how, I don't know if it was just the dead zone in name only or, or what, but, um, and I don't know if they ever did a, uh, Greg Stilson thing or anything, but it would be amazing to see someone make a TV show for like maybe three seasons. Um, and kind of each season, like this, this, I mean, shit, it's three seasons. First season is him getting his powers, uh, learning that he has those powers. And then the second season is the Castle Rock Strangler. And then the third season is Greg Stilson and you're done. Yeah. Like that would be amazing to have that much time to breathe and, and have the character like build up the relationships each, each season and everything would be astonishing and, and it would fit really well into the television medium. Agreed. Yep. Uh, so we're going to be doing that, and it is directed by David Cronenberg okay. uh, from 83, I believe. So we're going to be reviewing that in the coming weeks, and then we'll also have a review of Christine, both the novel and the movie. And, uh, yeah, eventually we'll get to The Dark Tower, um, <laughs> and we will have a commentary track for The Dark Tower movie. Yep. Yes. So, uh, yeah, uh, Tiny's about to pass out from his illness. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, well... Uh, I think that about does it for this uh, episode of Tower Junkies. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Long days and pleasant nights. And may you have twice the number. Thank you for listening to Tower Junkies, a Dark Tower podcast presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more of our episodes at TowerJunkiesPod.com and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, you can find ways to do that at towerjunkiespod.com slash donate or become a patron for Obsessive Viewer at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer for recurring donations with different reward tiers. Every donation goes toward paying the fees to keep the podcast running and is greatly appreciated. Any and all feedback on the podcast is encouraged. You can contact us by emailing us at matt at obsessiveviewer.com or by tweeting us at Tower Junkies Pod or at Obsessive Viewer and at Obsessive Tiny. You can also like us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Tower Junkies Pod. For more podcast content from ObsessiveViewer.com, 
Check out Anthology, my solo side project podcast where I'm reviewing The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and exploring other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology television shows. You can find Anthology at anthologypod.com and anywhere podcasts are found. Finally, if you're philosophically curious, check out Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts Chad and Amanda. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com and subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice. Once again, thank you for listening to Tower Junkies, and we'll see you next time.